Good day. You're listening to Free City Radio. This is the 140th edition of the show. Thank you for being with us. I'm Stefan Christophe in Geogiage, Montreal. On the broadcast today, I'm going to be featuring a conversation I had with Laura Carlson, who is the director of the Americas program of the Center for International Policy in Mexico City. We had a conversation about the Obrador government in Mexico, the role of social movements in contesting economic injustice within Mexico, but also across the Americas. We talked about the challenges that social movements face in the context of a government that speaks left and often has uh, retained neoliberal economic policies, especially vis-a-vis extractivism. We look at these complexities in a wide-ranging conversation. It was great to speak with Laura, so I'll just leave our conversation here to share with you. By way of introduction, first, Laura, can you share a bit about um, your involvement with feminist movements and economic justice movements in Mexico? I mean, largely you've been involved uh, in terms of translating, projecting, and articulating um, sort of the complexities of social movements in Mexico today, which is so important at this moment where you have uh, a government that's often talks left and moves right, to be very simplistic about it. But yeah, just first, if you could introduce yourself. Sure, and thanks so much for the opportunity to talk to your listeners today. Uh, I feel very strongly about creating more bridges between the United States, U.S. politics, and what's happening in Latin America, and particularly among social movements. So I've been the director of the Americas program for the last um, almost 20 years, if you can believe it. And I've been based in Mexico City. Uh, and then in recent years, I've been working as the coordinator of global solidarity and learning for a feminist international organization that works on strengthening women's and feminist movements in three regions, in Africa and Asia and in Mesoamerica, that's called Just Associates or Jazz. So this has really been my life's work, um, working with social movements, understanding the power relationships in particular, um, the advances, you know, for so many years you see so many advances and then also setbacks within this whole very changing scenario that is the building of people's power on an international level. There's so much there, uh, Laura. So maybe we can try to draw on some specifics. Um, when we think about uh, social movements, particularly in Mexico today, um, can you just, uh, for us, share a bit of a picture of uh, the distance between the progressive rhetoric of the government in Mexico today um, and the realities of land-based struggles? I realize the sort of paramilitary-based um, vicious violence that really defined recent administrations in Mexico um, is not as present, um, but on a structural level, um, a lot of the system aspect of relationship between capital corporations and the state hasn't really changed. And I, I really 
felt it was important to sort of hear some of the specifics of what that looks like um, because the shorthand um, translation of what's happening in Mexico today has become a little bit more um, complex. Yeah, and we can go beyond Mexico because this is a long-standing debate and area of analysis among people on the left, especially, which has to do with the relationship between social movements and progressive governments. We saw in the early 2000 that the continent experienced what's called the pink wave, where there were suddenly, uh, in a short period of time, number of progressive or left or center-left governments, and the terminology is worth taking a look at as well, throughout the continent, and it began to raise this question of where does that leave social movements. The It's very context-based, the kind of analysis you do on that question, and you can't lose sight of that. There's no one answer that fits to all these different countries, the experience in Argentina, the experience in Brazil, the current experiences that are just beginning in Chile and in Colombia, and of course Mexico's experience where we have Andres Manuel López Obrador at the, at, in the middle of his six-year presidential term. And he came in with uh, a determination and has said it very often to end neoliberalism. And one of the major messages of his administration has been uh, this division between the old neoliberal governments and what they're doing today. Now, the path that he's been following has been a similar path to what are called the progressive governments in especially the Andean countries in Ecuador and Bolivia. What this entails basically is a redistribution of wealth, although the Mexican experience has not included a new tax system that would... uh, that would tax the rich at a higher rate, and Mexico does suffer from the, from the enormous inequality that characterizes the entire continent, the most unequal continent in the world. Um, the rich are very, very rich, including the Carlos Slims and some of the other multi-billionaires here in Mexico, whereas poverty continues to be widespread. Uh, so we're not seeing a head-on confrontation with that. It's been a formula that includes social programs, including the pension programs, including uh, some of the supports for small farmers that have made a difference in people's lives. And you have to recognize that because we're talking about a president who has over a 60% approval rating. It's actually one of the highest in the world. And part of this can be explained by the programs that have alleviated some of the, some of the uh, suffering, the lack of basic needs of the most vulnerable sectors. And part of it can be explained because of the way that he communicates. He has these daily uh, press conferences in which he talks to the people in a very colloquial manner um, and, and does actually you know, open himself up to questioning uh, a lot of the policies. Now, on the other hand, this is a president who, who came in with the support of a lot of grassroots social movements in Mexico, but uh, does not believe in governing with them. 
basically his concept of representational government is a traditional concept that these people voted for me, now I'll do what I think is best for them. It's also a very patriarchal concept. Um, and that means that the, the social movements themselves are not involved in government, although we also have this phenomenon that's been both criticized and praised of a, a fairly large number of individuals who are leaders of grassroots movements, whether it's the Campesino peasant movement or indigenous movements or, or women's movements, and that have then become part of the government in the hopes that this would bring about some of the changes and respond to some of the demands that have been at the tops of their the top of their agendas for many years. So the disappointments I would say so far in this government have to do with a number of key areas. Certainly one of the movements that's remained autonomous from the government itself and probably the, the strongest on a broad basis is the women's movement. And there the frustration has been that although there has been a lot of rhetoric regarding ending violence against women, we've seen the femicide rates remain fairly steady and we've also seen the homicide rates experience uh, um, some ebbs and flows, but in general, going from a very high rate in the Peña Nieto government, they have, uh, what most calculations say, they perhaps diminished between 2 and 3%, which is not a major turnaround for a government that also promised uh, a big change in the security policy, going from a war on drugs with the use of the armed forces to uh, a more concentrated focus on some of the root causes of the violence in the country. Now, in general, that strategy has not changed. In fact, we just had a major discussion, and, and there's still a hot debate within the country regarding the security policy because they just legalized the use of the, of the National Guard as part of the Secretary of Defense. That is, it's now formally run by the Army in domestic policing tasks. Um, this has been a big debate ever since the war on drugs was launched at the end of 2006 by the Felipe Calderon government. And at that time, many of us said, this is going to lead to more bloodshed. And that's exactly what happened. If you look at those homicide rates, they began going up when that war on drugs with massive use of the army in the streets was launched. And we began to see territorial battles throughout the country. So that's one area where there's been a lot of talk that there's a change, but in effect, there hasn't been a real change in terms of that militarized approach to fighting organized crime. And then what you mentioned in the neoliberalism, well, we have a president, if you take it at face value and you put aside these constant statements that we are the government that came after the neoliberal period, you know, what you're seeing is a president with fairly standard neoliberal policies. They entered enthusiastically into the renegotiation of the North American Free Trade Agreement, NAFTA. We now have the treaty, Mexico, United States, Canada, the U.S. Um, and here it's called the. That's what it's called, and then it's and and it ha, it's like the U.S. Mexico. I mean U.S. 
Canada, Mexico, they put it in a different order in the United States version of it, of the translation. But anyway, you have this NAFTA 2, basically, that's not much changed from NAFTA 1. And, uh, and, and there was sort of a feeling, even among us activists who worked hard against NAFTA 1, there was a recognition that you can't, uh, that a lot of integration had taken place in certain ways and that it would be, it would probably be very difficult to scrap it all together. But, but aside the fact that they got rid of the use of, of supranational tribunals in some, but not all cases, uh, there were very few advances or, or uh, changes, really, you know, deep changes between those two. And in fact, he's gone on to say that he would like to see more integration in North America, which is the pillar of neoliberalism, you know, globalized capitalism, and and has no recognition of the asymmetries that were always at the heart of this um, flawed integration plan, at least from the Mexican perspective, and the way that it really seriously had a negative effect on small farmers and and on development from a more egalitarian point of view. And so that's been a little bit hard to jibe, you know, with his statements that were post-neoliberal. And then you also have a focus on inflation, which is traditional for neoliberal governments. Again, you have the counterbalance of redistribution plans. But um, overall, yeah, it comes down to we're not really seeing structural changes in a neoliberal capitalist government. And then the extractivism is a whole other issue, which you yeah, can, yeah. you can act, ask about later. Well, thank you so much. I mean, I, I think that, well, I would really encourage people to look up your work, Laura, um, to learn more about a bunch of these specifics, because we won't be able to address everything in this one program. But I'll just draw, draw on uh, maybe from what you've shared, uh, we can go over a few points. So very tangibly, you talked about um, the tension between the relationships of social movements and governments that align themselves in the public-facing matter to the left. So in the context of Mexico today, I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about that challenge, because if we think about the experience in Ecuador, we think about the experience in Brazil, and then you mentioned um, the contemporary reality in Chile. Of course, as as underlined, each situation is different. But the Bolivian ex- experience really showed the possibilities of social movement intervention, also Ecuador, in having an impact on policy. Um, and I think it's often hard for people to sort of... Um, get their heads around that dynamic of tension that exists between um, a government that was basically elected with support from social movements, but once in office, there's this uh, tension and contrast between policy versus campaign rhetoric. I'm wondering, like, how important is it for, uh, you know, activists internationally to really think critically about the importance of understanding the role that social movements play after an election like like this has happened. And you, you mentioned that AMLO is in the middle of his term. So I, I, would, I would understand that this 
tension and street level mobilization is going to play a key role in shaping the next three years of the administration. I think the number one lesson that we've seen from Mexico and also from the other countries in Latin America who have gone through this process of having a progressive government that was elected with the support of social movements is that the social movements must retain their autonomy from the government. You may have more options and opportunities and spaces to work with the government on some of the demands that have been central to the movement. There may be possibilities to advance. In almost all cases, uh, one clear lesson was that the advantage is that you have a less repressive context which creates uh, more opportunities for social movements to strengthen and grow. Although um, you've also seen clear example where where there's been co-optation, where I think, you know, if you talk about the farmers movement here, you don't really see much anymore in terms of it as as an autonomous movement. And uh, you do see a lot of cases in which they're working directly with the government. If you look at the indigenous movement, it's the opposite situation. And again, it's, it's not really right to talk about these movements as, as a block because there are many currents, there are many different ways of accommodating and, and analyzing the context and using the context to advance within the local expressions of the movements, the state, the regional. However, in general terms, you see an indigenous movement where, um, where there's a lot of opposition because primarily of the fact that this government is following an extractivist, developmentalist um, way of looking at the economy. So that creates automatically a number of, contact, of conflicts for land um, with indigenous movements and with indigenous communities. In this government here, what we're seeing is that there's uh, extractivism concentrated on oil and gas. One of the big priorities for the government is to build the refineries. And although they have not actually increased production, in fact, they have kept production at a lower level, uh, there's a clear strategy toward the future of using, continuing to use oil and gas and fossil fuels as the motor for the economy. That is typical of, of several in progressive governments where the strategy, the big change between the classic neoliberal and their own strategy is to continue with extractivism, causing the same kinds of conflicts both with indigenous communities and peasant communities and ecology as well because of the destruction of the earth as that becomes more and more a huge issue when we look toward the future, but to nationalize and then redistribute a part of the resulting wealth. So that's what we're seeing in Mexico as well. We're seeing the decision to nationalize lithium production in the future We're seeing the decision to take more control over oil and gas production. They're revising and reviewing some of the contracts and the corruption that was involved in the contracts to transnational corporations. And and in terms of that part, getting rid of the transnational control and uh, trying to limit the corruption, it's certainly a laudable goal 
But in terms of fossil fuels and gas and oil, no country in this day and age should be betting on that as the future of development because it contributes directly to the lack of a future for the planet. You know, so, so that's one of the huge criticisms there, especially with the environmental movement, which isn't particularly strong here in Mexico, but, in, but, uh, but is, is obviously important to take into account. The question of land, and you know, you, you talked about the, the distance between indigenous movements and the government um, in Mexico today, um, and territory. Uh, there's been a lot of celebration um, and nostalgia that has gone into the construction of the Mayan train project um, as sort of a national identity project but it contrasts very heavily with ideas of territory and land um, in the southeast of the country. Can you talk a bit more about this and why understanding the social, political, uh, cultural, economic debates around the Mayan train project are important in relation to these broader realities that you're talking about? Yeah, absolutely. And and that's an, that's another one of the key features of this government is the creation of these mega projects that will then be part of the legacy of the Lopez Obrador government. And we've seen the same thing with other governments as well. So one of the major legacy projects is the Train Maya. There was clearly a, po- a problem in development that's been noted a long time ago and especially with the NAFTA form of development, that the South was left behind. And so the government decided that this would be one of the things that they would do to try to remedy that. However, there's a direct clash and a contradiction by choosing to create this mega project of tourism through the southern part of the country because of... Um, of the, impl- of the implications that it has. It really requires taking over indigenous land that was being used for other purposes, land that's sacred, land that culturally you know, and religiously, land uh, that moves from indigenous community control to federal control. Um, it implies destruction of rainforests. It implies uh, a whole different way of thinking about development or, you know, even the term development has been rejected by many indigenous peoples because what they're looking for is more just right living, a balance, the way to sustain yourself with the earth, a whole cosmovision that's very different from what this kind of mega project implies. So there have been a lot of conflicts. There's also been violations of the law. The law of consultation with indigenous people when you're looking at how you use their indigenous lands um, was not respected in many of the decisions regarding the train Maya and where it goes through. Yeah, yeah. And just on this point, Laura, thank you so much for bringing in that broader um, vision conflict in relation to um, indigenous perceptions of territory, time and economics. I think often like if we if we think of an example in the Americas of the extreme right under Bolsonaro, right? Like the quick turn is to say the destruction of, you know, the Sahado or the Amazon takes place really just at the behest of an extreme right government. But if we look a bit more closely, like to the work of Grain 
or other organizations um, that have really un- unpacked how international investments play a key role in this process that is really involving the state, but goes beyond the state. And if we think about the context in Mexico, I'm just wondering um, when we talk about the, the conflictual realities of vision between land and territory on the stance of indigenous communities versus the centralized state of Mexico, how that conflict actually is about a broader um, sociological, economic and political conflict in the Americas that goes beyond the central authority of the Mexican state, which is in fact just one representation of a broader colonial process. And I think that's it's often that broader analysis is left out in reporting. Yeah, and I think it's that broader analysis that brings us back to the frictions that we've seen under progressive governments. Um, the, in, under, in, that, in that other vision, the vision that could actually sustain our planet at this critical juncture, um, progress in itself is questioned because it's associated with a linear progression toward accumulation toward wealth, toward exploitation of resources um, that the, the indigenous people are rejecting. In fact, there's now, the, much of that movement now talks explicitly about degrowth. It talks explicitly about a whole completely different set of values that don't have to do with accumulation of wealth and that are anti-capitalist. You know, so, so So when we start talking about progressive governments and we talk about center-left governments and we hail their arrival um, compared to the advances that we see in other countries of the far right, it's beginning to be a much more nuanced conversation. It's beginning to be a conversation that says, okay, yes, now in Latin America we see that the far right has been defeated and that's a good thing because it's racist, because it's intensely sexist, because it's, it's more exploitive of both resources and human beings than the center left or left or progressive governments. But on the other hand, we begin to see that many of the critiques that, um, that are put forth of the right wing, ring, right wing governments, you know, also apply to these progressive and that we probably need a whole way to look at it that doesn't just say right and left, that doesn't just say progressive or reactionary, you know, a whole new lens that allows us to conceive of a state or a society that welcomes diversity, that turns away from a capitalist government and not in a socialist government that that carries out the same extractive policies but with nationalized industries, you know. And we still don't have that conceptualization. We have the critiques that are building constantly as our experience grows uh, but we still don't have the deep conceptualization. When we look at some of these new governments, it's hard to tell so far, but we are seeing a new left come into power. In, in Chile and in Colombia, there's a specifically feminist orientation to the governments. In Mexico, for example, the president has been open about saying that he is not a feminist. He says he's a humanist and he has no concept whatsoever, you know, that there's some inequality there that must be addressed explicitly 
when uh, we talk about women's rights. He has a commitment to, to parity in government, to equal representation of women in government, which has been complied with. He's attained it in the original cabinet, in the Congress. You know, there's some serious advances in terms of some aspects, but in other aspects, and especially a deeper feminist analysis, of what uh, you know, of what society should be, we not only find a failure to accept it, but a failure to, um, but an but an active negation of those kinds of things. Now, these newer governments, as I was saying, in Colombia and Chile, they do have an explicit, um, not only con- uh, commitment, but also representation of feminists. Also in Honduras, Honduras is really important to mention even though it's a, a smaller country that doesn't really have, it's not a big player on the economic geopolitical scene, uh, but they have a lot of feminists involved in the new government that they were able to bring to power to end the coup and post-coup regimes there. Laura, thank you so much for, for ch- chatting today, for sharing your thoughts. I really appreciate it. Well, thanks very much for the opportunity. I look thanks. forward to joining you again someday. Right on. That was a conversation with Laura Carlson, uh, who's based in Mexico City and is the director of the Americas program at the Center for International Policy. Uh, You can find out more information at americas.org. This has been Free City Radio. I'm Stefan Christoph in Geogiage, Montreal. We broadcast weekly on CKUT 90.3 FM in Montreal, Wednesdays at 11, CGLO 1690 AM, also in Geogiage, Montreal, Tuesdays at 1 p.m., CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg, Treaty 1 Territory of the Métis Nation, on CFRC 101.9 FM in Kingston, Ontario, on Wednesdays at 1130 and on CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria, British Columbia on Wednesdays at 9 a.m. You can find us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Our archives are at soundcloud.com slash freecityradio. This is a track by the Mexican Institute of Sound. Thanks for listening. I'll talk to you next week.